0: Thrillers, Chillers, and Chicks.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Thrillers, Chillers, and Chicks. I am your host, Hannah. And I'm your other host, Erica. And it's been a while. We've missed you uh, guys. Huh, huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Erica and I started this podcast and we were like, we're going to be on a schedule even though neither of us are good at being on schedules. And we're going to do it bi-weekly. It'll be great. And then my life got hit by a freight train and then Erica Got hit by a freight train. (laughs) A literal freight train. Wait, wait! (laughs) The freight train is metaphorical, but also... (laughs) Yeah, the metaphorical trains (laughs) in both instances. So that's why we've been kind of on hiatus, but we've been thinking about you guys, and we've been... Um, watching movies and we have a few uh, episodes already recorded and backlogged for you guys but we're going to try and do some fun stuff this October as we're coming up on the one year anniversary of starting the podcast so today we're back uh, here with you all and we're going to be talking about drumroll please I'm not actually (laughs) a shining The 1980 film directed by Stanley Kubrick is widely regarded by horror film buffs and just regular film buffs alike as a cinematic masterpiece. Neither Erica nor I had ever seen The Shining because we are posers. (laughs) Please. Um, I actually didn't know anything about The Shining prior to watching this movie other than it was the first movie my mom watched when she was home alone by herself when she was 12 and it scared... The will to live out of her <laughs> and that she wouldn't even speak of it without going pale well into her 40 <laughs> so I was a little afraid to watch it um I knew it was um based on a novel written by Stephen King but other than that I really didn't know much of anything what about you Erica um I did know a lot about this movie I'd never seen it
0: um I bought the book I haven't read it I still have the book somewhere around here maybe I will actually read it for once um, uh, but I've always watched, I always liked, um, you know, facts about movies, facts about right. movies, these movies, movies, or whatever, blah, 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 blah. Um, so I never watched it, but I had, you know, I'd heard a couple facts about it and I'd seen tons of clips. Like I know all of the popular clips and all the popular meme frames and red rum and, and
1: come play with it. Like I knew all those, but. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Like, I knew the, like, here's Johnny thing. I knew about the twins. Um, I didn't know red rum was from The Shining. Yeah. <laughs> um, for a while, like, I guess I'd heard it before, but I'd never heard of it in the, like, red rum kind of thing. I just thought it was, like, like spiced rum or white rum. Like, I'm not going to drink. <laughs> I was like, oh, that might be good. Um, yeah, but I didn't know much about it at all. <laughs> So after watching this movie, I definitely would be interested in reading the book because from our research, it looks like they're kind of two pretty different entities, but today we're just going to be talking about the movie. So the movie um, follows the Torrance family who uh, have been hired to be the caretakers of the historic Overlook Hotel during the off season. At the beginning of the movie when Jack Torrance is interviewing for the position, um, the manager of the hotel tells him that there has been um, a tragic incident in the past with one of the hotel's previous winter caretakers in which he axed his wife and two young daughters to death and then shot himself in the face. Um, Jack says he isn't necessarily bothered by this and is totally fine who's continuing to be the caretaker of the hotel. Um, They tell him, you know, he and his family will most likely be snowed into the hotel for the next six months. What was it, five to six months, Erica? Something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, Um, they'll have all the food and, uh, you know, items that they need to get through the winter. They'll have a radio down to the local police station, but they most likely won't be able to leave the hotel without the aid of like a snowcat or a four-wheeler or something like that. Um, Jack says that's totally fine with him since he has recently quit his teaching position in order to pursue his dreams of being a writer, and the isolation and solitude will give him time to think and be creative. So the family comes up to the hotel on the last day of the season. Most of the staff is packing up and leaving, and the cook uh, is it? Oh my goodness, Erica, I'm like, no, 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 Holston.
0: You're always good. You you be trying to keep up with these names. I was just like the cook mm-hmm.
1: Halloran. I knew it started with an H. Ah. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Dick Halloran, the cook, <laughs> um, is showing Wendy Torrance, Jack Torrance's wife, and Danny Torrance, the couple's five-year-old son, around the kitchens, showing them where all of the food supply will be and how to use some of the equipment. Uh, the manager comes by and asks to borrow Wendy so that he can show her and Jack some more of the hotel. Danny agrees and says he will stay behind with Danny and give him some ice cream. Um, so, over the, we've kind of seen um, a scene with Danny back in the Torrance's home before they moved to the hotel, where we learn that he has an imaginary friend named Tony who lives in his mouth, as Danny says. That talks to him. Uh, He seems to have some sort of psychic premonition which causes him to like kind of pass out in sort of a fit or episode. And when Wendy calls the doctor to come look at her son as she's concerned, rightfully so, as he just passed out (laughs) on the bathroom floor seemingly out of nowhere, um, the doctor Starts Asking Wendy more about Danny and kind of why he talks to Tony, his little imaginary friend, and asks if there's anything traumatic in Danny's past. And Wendy mentions how her husband Jack uh, once dislocated Danny's shoulder when he was about two or three. Uh, She says it was an accident because Jack was drunk and didn't know his own strength. Uh, The doctor gives her a look that kind of says, okay, honey, that's... (laughs) Sure, Jan. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Uh, Wendy doesn't exactly sound like she believes it herself, but you know how these things go. So when Danny is eating ice cream with Dick Halloran, the cook, he asks Danny how long he's been able to see things or hear voices in his head because Danny has been sort of speaking to him psychically a little bit as they were walking around the kitchen and he explains to Danny that he and his grandmother used to speak psychically and his grandmother called it the shine and he said there's lots of people who can shine and there's places that can shine or have a shine like the Overlook Hotel and Danny asks him if there's something bad in the hotel remembering his premonition which was pretty freaky it was full of blood and bodies Mm -hmm. and all kinds of gross stuff and dick hellerin kind of sidesteps the question he's like why do you ask (laughs) you know no everything's fine but also don't go into room 237 Mm -hmm. but for no reason (laughs) not that there's anything in there um and then over the course of the movie as the family is left in isolation we see more and more strange things happening in the hotel Jack's sanity completely deteriorates Um, he's conversing with a ghost of one of the past caretakers um, believed to be the one who axed his wife and daughters to death who convinces Jack that he needs to kill his wife and son so we spend a lot of the movie watching Wendy and Danny trying to escape from Jack in his murderous rage the movie ends with jack chasing danny through the hedge maze in the hotel uh danny manages to create a false trail for his dad to follow manages to double back to his mom where they escape on the snow cap that a concerned dick halloran had brought up to the hotel before being axed in the stomach by jack torrance Wendy and Danny make it out, and Jack freezes to death in the hedge maze. The movie closes out with a shot of a picture that's hanging in the hotel of a party or function that took place there in about 1921. And we see Jack standing at the forefront of the photo, which doesn't make a lot of sense considering that the movie took place in the 70s, (laughs) leaving everyone with the question why the hell was he in the picture? So Erica, <laughs> after my slightly scattered and um, brief recap of The Shining, tell us some of your initial thoughts on the movie. Um,
0: I had a lot of initial thoughts and so I have like some stuff in my little notes, my little notebook, and I know one thing because uh, we you know of course we like talk about the movies at least a little bit after we watch them and I remember you talking about how you felt like that beginning scene went on a little too long uh, yeah. where he's doing like the interview and I agree and one thing that I thought that was weird was um, uh, Jack's face is just very uncomfortable to me in that scene and the way he's like talking and because he like he, the, the interview guy will talk to him and then it's, like, Jack's processing in a weird way. And I can't tell if that's, like, Jack Nicholson or if it's his acting. Like, 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 I don't know which it is. Choice, yeah. Yeah, I can't really tell. Um, uh, even if it is an artistic choice, although I think it's cool if it was on purpose and, like, very well done. I still do think the scene went on for too long. Like, I kind of got the gist of that you know, after the first few questions and I I just didn't need to stare at them all sitting around per se. But, um, that was one thought. And I, I just can't tell, uh, throughout this movie, I'm like, do I hate Jack Nicholson's face or, (laughs) or, or is he just really acted out this part?
1: (laughs) I agree. I haven't really seen Jack Nicholson in anything up to this point and uh oh boy I do not like that man's face (laughs) he's sure great at making me uncomfortable (laughs) yeah I've only
0: seen and I haven't even seen the full movie I've only seen Jack Nicholson because he's the Joker in one of the old Batman movies and he looks just as uncomfortable especially because they have all that makeup on him and he's definitely like holding this cartoony smile with his already kind of face <laughs> it's already kind of weird face so it certainly doesn't add to the Jack Nicholson's face is normal and he's just making that expression real freaky like so so I really can't tell <laughs> sorry to
1: Jack Nicholson but I think yeah sorry Jack Nicholson weird. if you're listening he did a great job making me very weirded out mm-hmm. but I don't know if that's necessarily what you were going for so. yeah <laughs> But that was
0: like my first thought and then um there's also uh janny um one thing that you'll probably see me say over and over again and that you'll see hints of in all my other notes is that there are like moments in this film where i think things are done really well or really cool <laughs> and i i like them i like how they're used but unfortunately i didn't think it was good enough to make this movie
1: super great in my eyes. No, I Um, agree. I will say that is one thing Erica and I have agreed on is we are not big fans of The Shining. mm -mm. I think it's extremely overhyped. Yeah. And, like, I, I like
0: parts of it, and I think there are some really cool things that this movie did and maybe even pioneered in a sense. But overall, I'm like, it just doesn't really do it for me. I just... I'm not getting the same hype and I think a big part of the hype was probably the time it was released and and maybe the things that they did that were kind of different at the time.
1: Yeah well even Stephen King was not really a big fan of this particular adaptation and we've talked a lot um, just us after watching the movie about how the book um, seems like it would have been a lot different than the movie. Some of my Issues that I had with the movie um, that may be done differently in the book. I I know I personally will be reading it after this um, just to compare and contrast. Um, There were a lot of kind of ghosts or spirits that sort of showed up in this movie. We have the twins, um, which were referenced in the earlier interview scene. Obviously, you know, axed to death by their father, but then in room 237, which was kind of alluded to as being some big point of darkness or evil by both Danny and Dick Halloran earlier in the movie. Um, Danny goes in there and then we don't really see what happens except he leaves with uh, bruises on his neck. Uh, looks like he's been choked out by someone. And <clears throat> when Jack goes to investigate the room, he finds a young, beautiful, naked woman who is in the bathtub and she gets up out of the bathtub to just go and make out with him prompting the question is he awake or is he having a wet dream and then the woman (laughs) turns into this is revealed I guess to be like this old lady with like rotting sores all over her body and she starts laughing at Jack and he runs away from the room um, horrified and disgusted And that's never really explained. The significance of that woman isn't exactly touched on. And then later on in the movie, you know, we have the ghost of the bartender, um, the ghost of one of the past caretakers, as well as um, there seems to be like almost like Jack has stepped back in time to this party, which is where he meets the ghost of the past caretaker. There's all these people from the twenties around like drinking and having a good time. And it's like, he sort of stepped through some barrier. That's not really touched on. And they all seem to know him and be familiar with him, which isn't touched on. <laughs> um, and the caretaker at one point tells him, he says, Jack, you know, you've always been here. You've always been a part of the hotel, which I think was a line that connects back to Jack being in the picture from the 1920s. Um And then at one point when Wendy is fleeing through the hotel, she sees um, a couple through an open door in one of the rooms wearing a furry, one of them is wearing a furry suit and the other one is in a tuxedo and they're, you know, doing things. I'm sorry, my cat is meowing. He very much wants to be a part of this podcast. He keeps walking over my keyboard. (laughs) Ferguson, the unofficial editor of Thrillers, Chillers, and Chicks. <laughs> Get it, for <forget> Fergie. <laughs> My goodness. Um, that seems to really just kind of be there for shock value. Um, I live in Atlanta, so furries are not necessarily shocking. <laughs> you want to Although see some they real... remain uncomfortable. <laughs>
0: If you want to see some real furry horror, uh, just read up or watch videos. There's a really good one by a guy named, uh, his YouTube channel is called The Internet Historian uh, about a convention called Rainforest. Uh, It was apparently a nightmare, (laughs) and the convention was so bad that when they tried to do the convention another year, uh, no hotel on that side of the country would take them, and eventually they just shut the convention down. So, I won't go any more into it than that, so we don't get too sidetracked, but there's some real furry horror for you. Also, like we said, have... <laughs> not
1: necessarily shocking, but they remain disturbing and uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we have nothing against furries. It's just kind of a touch and go. And so I'm kind of like, ah.
1: <laughs> I have nothing against furries who stay a good 25 feet away from me at no! all. No! I'll hug a
0: furry, but I'm going to have to vet it out first. Because some of them... I there, There's definitely an, an unfortunately prominent minority, <laughs> as I've heard and seen. In but, uh, Atlanta, in Atlanta, they're,
1: yeah. they're everywhere.
0: They're <laughs> very kind and smell nice and aren't awful. So
1: I don't mind hanging out with furries as long as I don't know that you're a furry. <laughs> <laughs> as long as that is a piece of information I never have about you, we're gonna be great. Um, anyways, that was more information about furries than you probably needed, but it's also more information than that scene gave you.
0: (laughs) You're Uh, welcome.
1: (laughs) At another point, Wendy walks into the ballroom and it's just filled with skeletized uh, remains, all dressed up in 1920s party fashion. They're all just kind of sitting there. There's just, and you know, I was reading up on The Shining after we watched it, because I was sort of like, why do people like this movie? So much, and they keep calling it this masterpiece. And I just I'm not really seeing it. And um, you know, a lot of people said that Stanley Kubrick uh, made the artistic choice to leave a lot of details vague or open to interpretation. Um, which I think personally is just a lazy artist way of saying, "I don't know. I thought it would look cool." <laughs> yeah. Because There's a difference between leaving things open to interpretation and throwing things in there for shock value or just to be kind of creepy and ooky, which like would be fine if The Shining was set up to be just a creepier ooky movie, but the idea that it's filled with some kind of like highbrow symbolism, I think is inherently incorrect. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things in there that are there just to be shocking and try to add to, like, the mystery. But at the same time, <clears throat> I I don't know if you can even say, like, you can have something up to interpretation, but I feel like it needs to have a tie-in. Because, for okay. example, like, like there are movies I've watched, I was thinking about it the other night, there are movies I've watched that have left things very open to interpretation, no short endings, lots of things that are kind of vague, and the cool thing is they do that and tie those things in in a way that kind of keep me thinking about them, right? Like, for the next couple of days, I'm like, I I want to read up on it. I want to know uh, more. Like, even like Puka, there's a lot of things that seem oh, random yeah. and out of nowhere in that movie that I thought about for a long time. And then once hearing about them, I thought it was really well done and really interesting. It was something I wanted to research. But for The Shining, like, some of the things that happened, I'm like, it would have been really cool if they did something more with that and I didn't think about it at all ever again other than like I was really hoping that I'd see that character more or see something in play with that more and it didn't happen so I guess it was just there to be there and that I kind of shrugged like I didn't really think about it past that point
1: <laughs> exactly I feel the same way and like what part of I think what was so disappointing about it was there was a lot I feel that they could have done with different things and and I think this was maybe a case of them perhaps trying to do too much, but Mm -hmm. from the earlier interview scene, which as I've said, one of my first criticisms of it was this interview scene is taking forever. They only talk about the previous caretaker family being wiped out in the murder suicide. Then they kind of move into this thing of like, Oh, it's, the hotel itself that has all these evil spirits kind of like attached to it so, but the main tragedy that they discussed was the murder suicide and they kind of made it sound like that was the only bad thing that had really happened in the hotel whereas seeing all these other spirits ghosts you know ooky, spooky things kind of gave the impression that maybe there's more going on here but it's never really addressed none of it's ever really fleshed out so the intentions of these spirits or of the hotel itself as some evil spiritual entity are unclear and then with jack's descent into insanity That, I feel like, was kind of cheapened by he didn't exactly seem sane to me in the first place.
0: Yeah, I, that was also something, because I was like, we never really get to see him in comparison. Like, we only see him crazy, and throughout the movie, he's kind of put offish and weird, and I don't really trust him. And then on top of that, like, he, I think I wrote in my notes, I was like, it's, it was interesting to see how they could make a character so unlikable. <laughs> so unlikable. And, and kind of very quickly and gradually at the same time. Like, I'm, I I know that sounds weird, but, like, I already didn't really like him. And then they add stuff on, and I was like, well, I really don't like him. So I didn't like him to begin with, and I already thought he was a little out there. And, like, there's no... <laughs> I know. And it's
1: it's annoying, again, because I feel like it could have been made better if... You know they talk about how yes he dislocated danny's shoulder but maybe they show us that he's really shocked at himself for having done that and this you know going to the hotel to be in solitude with his family um you know quitting alcohol maybe he's he's really trying to be a better husband and father um because he loves wendy and danny but you never get the sense in the movie that he cares about wendy and danny really at all he from the outset seems to be an extremely selfish character who detests his wife and son and kind of views them as holding him back and so when he goes after them with the axe it's not really shocking or surprising and as horrified as you feel for wendy and danny you're not necessarily like heartbroken for them if that makes sense because like you kind of always knew this was coming and the two of them kind of always seemed to know it was coming as well. So Mm -hmm. as horrifying and sad as it is, it's not as much of the shocking betrayal I think that Kubrick was hoping to make it because Jack Torrance never really seemed like a family man in any sense of the word at all. He seemed to just constantly be loathing his family and wishing that they would disappear and i don't necessarily think that it would have taken a haunted hotel for him to snap and try to kill his family in any other circumstances
0: mm-hmm. yeah it just I, I and like and even when i read up on things because like a lot of times especially like together a lot <coughs> of the things that we did try and look into weren't so much as a oh what's the symbolism and more of a oh Why did he do that? Like, like that's there, and I don't know. Like, you know, was that something in the book that he's trying to allude to? Uh, Because, you know, you know there's a book and something before that point. Um, And it just, it doesn't, uh, none of it really reads how I think he wanted it to read, at least to me. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'd like to say is, trust me, I love symbolism. I love metaphors. I eat that shit. But movies, doesn't matter. I'm all about it. I'm all about obscure meaning and whatnot. But this just didn't really pull that off. It seems like there was way too much that he was trying to cram in there. Mm -hmm. He doesn't let anything really fully develop so nothing fully hits. Um, And a lot of the things that were interesting about this movie, I think were kind of kind of visual decisions but I feel like they're too few, and they're just not cool enough to make up for what's lacking narratively.
1: There were a lot of points in this movie that would have been excellent jumping off points to make a really good film. Mm-hmm. And none of them were jumped off. <laughs> yeah. So lots of points where you were like, wow, that's great. They're gonna, they're gonna run with that. No, there will be no running with anything except Stanley. I- rick's hubris (laughs) i was rooting for it and like
0: i even have notes where i wrote like right after a scene like oh this is really cool and i think this is really cool if it's this um and it doesn't end up being that and the the meaning of that decision is something that i placed upon it as in if i were to do this this was something i would expand upon but it doesn't get expanded upon so it just feels like a letdown when you don't see anything else because like The lady in the bath, I thought that was really cool to have something that appears so beautiful and young and skinny in this way. And then it becomes something so grotesque, like, in your hands. And there's something you could have said about female beauty, male desire, um, you know, infidelity. Because, you know, he has a wife and Mm -hmm. here's this random ghost bathtub lady that he's just willing to kiss (laughs) out of nowhere. Like, so many things, you know, the female body, like, so many things that could have worked. Um, and nothing else happens with it other than, you gross, that lady has sores now. Exactly. And Jack's gonna go back and talk to his wife, I guess.
1: It's almost, in my opinion, it, in some ways, it felt kind of similar to, like, modern art that you'll see in museums, where it'll be, like, a bicycle tire on a pedestal. And they're like, this is art. And I'm, you know, there's something to be said for, like, the statement of, just something mundane and calling it art and you know forcing people to question what is art blah 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 cool i'm talking about you know you have a scene like let's talk about the jack back bathtub scene because i agree with you here with with the young lady and with jack so like erica said so many things could have been done there But I think in order to attribute any kind of meaning or any kind of symbolism to that scene, it has to tie into the greater storyline somewhere to just take this thing that has all of this potential and just kind of plop it down in the middle. is sort of like having a seed that has the potential to become a tree and just putting it on a concrete slab and it's not going to do anything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You got to plant it
0: in the dirt. Mm -hmm. And even like, even if you want to kind of keep going with that tire thing, part of that art and that being art is in order for that to even be considered art or for someone to present that at art, they almost have to create some meaning for it. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if it's fair for Stanley Kubrick to have given us something and not tied it in, not had any meaning in mind or leaving it open-ended quote-unquote in that way and then i'm like well like it could mean this but i feel like i'm thinking totally out of the span of this movie so i can't really attribute this to an artistic part of the movie uh, i can say that that was something cool that i wish was done something else, you know in some other way but i don't know if i can say oh beautiful movie cho-, you know like
1: Exactly, and the
0: gay furries, like, why were they there? Oh, oh, I have information for that. Ooh. cause, um, I, cause, okay, so we, are more, Hannah did research, uh, cause we, you know, it shows up, and you're like, okay, hi, what
1: the fuck, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> like that. Maybe that scene is kind of, of cool. I did at 4 a.m. after this movie. Was so much. I was so mad. I kept like walking out into the living room where Erica was at like four thirty in the morning and being like, "I just read. <laughs> this like, was why they did this.
0: <laughs> like why?" And, and well, it's odd. And you know, maybe there is. It's another thing. Maybe a piece of that is a little genius because uh, when it turns to see um, oh, what's her name? Wendy? Mm-hmm. No. Wendy oh yes when it turns to see Wendy's face I felt like I was looking at a mirror I was like same girl what the fuck is going on right now and she just kind of goes no and keeps going with whatever she's doing and I'm like all right all right Wendy I'm following your lead here but um so she did research and part of the theory for that or one of the theories I guess is um that it's supposed to allude to possible child molestation oh for Danny and Jack. So the bear is supposed to represent like Danny, and then the guy in the suit is supposed to be like Jack. And it's a bear because he has a bear toy in the beginning, which he kind of it doesn't. Wasn't it's not even like a bear, though. Below. It is, That's yeah, it
1: doesn't look the same. It's not a bear, it's a dog. <laughs> It looks like the dog from Tom and Jerry, like the Tom and Jerry cartoons, if y'all have seen that, or the dog that's like on Mug Root Beer. It, so like, I can see how people might think it's a bear, but it's definitely a dog. Yeah, like a bull- and it bull- doesn't look- Yeah, and people were like, oh, it could be... Um, Kubrick never said this, but this is just a popular fan theory where, yeah, it, it it alludes to there being some sort of child sexual abuse going on. And I've just got to say... One of the biggest pet peeves of mine <laughs> is when people try to take anything and everything in media and say that it somehow alludes to child sexual abuse. Because <sighs> it feels like some cheap way to like try and create shock value where there wasn't supposed to be shock value. Because I think for a lot of people, that is one of the darkest and most disturbing topics that they can think of. And they'll be like, oh, this alludes to, you know, child sex abuse. And it's like, no, I think it was just gay people wilding out in the Overlook Hotel. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah, I don't. It bothers me. It really does. I don't. Yeah. Because I don't think it's a topic that should be used for shock value it's kind of like any sort of sexual assault no you know it I don't know it bothers me it's like you know like there's people who say spirited away was supposed to be a metaphor for like child sex trafficking and Miyazaki himself was like no no and it's just people trying to make something that's supposed to be innocent and you know this beautiful movie that was made for, with children in mind, trying to make it into something darker than it was ever intended to be. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The world is dark it's... enough. Y'all don't need to be bringing other, other shit into it.
0: Yeah, it's just kind of odd. I, Because I, I don't quite know it's just an odd thing to try to attribute you whenever possible. <laughs> like a child is involved and suddenly it's a metaphor for this. And I'm like, can it not though? Like, does it, especially to put that like in terms of Miyazaki to place that on someone else's work where they're like, no, please don't say that. Like I, that is not at all what I meant for. I, I think it's important to keep that in mind when that's not at all what it's meant for, you know, like, and in this case, I, not in not in terms of, like, the source material for The Shining, nor really in the movie itself do I think that theory makes sense. I think something cool really could have been done with the fact that Wendy saw that. Like, it wasn't Jack or Danny. It was Wendy viewing that scene and, like, why Wendy's viewing the ghost that she is versus Jack's not really seeing those things. Once again, something that could have been cool in some way, but just kind of sits flat and i did research on that scene and from what i could find um from people who worked with kubrick as well as stephen king because he was kind of there stephen king and kubrick's relationship for the for this movie sounds really odd because he was kind of like present but not at the same time yeah and, and, and like there were a lot of things um like for example um stephen king actually wrote a script for this movie but kubrick Brick didn't read it and decided to, uh, you know, work with whatever writer he decided on, which I was like, weird, wild. Once you finished with your fun fact,
1: I'm circling back to this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but just kind of as an example. But um, even then, so from what they said, it looked like that it was a reference to one of the, you know, hauntings in the book or one of like the big events that happened in the book. And um, in the book, even though I don't think anything happens in that way, it's supposed to be like the guy in the suit invites the guy who's apparently in that costume to a party and lies to him and tells him he's supposed to wear that costume. Um, And then he shows up to the party in that costume and they make fun of him. And it was supposed to... Oh my god. Maybe gosh. not in that way, but it's supposed to represent, like, a power imbalance, which I think is something that's super cool, and that could have been done in that way if you wanted to, but wasn't, you know, it was just kind of put in there, ah, uh, spooky shocked. So it was supposed to be, like, oh, a please. nod to the movie for some reason, but I think they flubbed it up. But it was supposed to be, like, at least the costuming was supposed to be a nod to that those characters, and that supposed to be mm-hmm. represented, a representation of power imbalance, and the um abuse of that power imbalance because I think the guy in the bear suit's supposed to like work for him or something
1: well that is very interesting (laughs) that that was done in the book and I will be circling back to throwing out the script that Stephen King the author of The Shining threw out now anyone who knows me knows that I am not Stephen King's biggest fan, and I have a long litany of reasons for that, which we will get to in another episode, I'm sure, because we will be doing more Stephen King movies, I can promise you, as he is one of the most prolific horror writers of our generation, if not any generation ever. However, one of my largest pet peeves in this world (laughs) is when a director um takes a book or really when any artist is taking another artist's work to convert it from one medium to another and they throw out the source material and basically say i can do it better no you can't the reason people want it converted from one medium to the other is because they enjoyed the original source material your job Here is not as an artist to create something new or to bounce off of the original idea. It's to be a caretaker and make a piece of art that is faithful to the original source material and the original idea that the author was trying to convey. Because I think if Kubrick had been more faithful to the book, to what Stephen King had put together, this movie would have made so much more sense and i think been a lot more artistically satisfying i think there was a lot of symbolism in the book that stephen king put there that made sense and i don't think all of it was explicitly explained to us like plebeians you know but i think it was it was much better done and it really bothers me i (laughs) i i have beef with with directors doing that peter jackson did it with the hobbit trilogy Um, to an extent with the Lord of the Rings trilogy as well. Uh, whoever made that first live action Last Airbender.
0: <laughs> they definitely did that. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, uh, they never released a movie. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, what am I talking about? That never happened. <laughs> yes. It just bothers me. Because like. It's. You know. My, my sibling Claire. Who we've had on the podcast before. Could go on about this for hours. But. It's, it's sort of this idea that the live action movie or TV show is sort of the highest form of media that like the highest honor that could be bestowed upon a work of art is being given a live action adaptation as if this is somehow the pinnacle of art, which is not true. (laughs) And I think that idea kind of gives these directors and these producers the ego that the, the ego and like the, um, oh goodness, what what is the word I'm looking for? The gall? The gall. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, okay. The gall to change whatever they want because they are higher artists and, you know, Stephen King, Tolkien, um, you know, they should all be grateful that they're getting a live action adaptation of anything and they know better because they work at cinema. It's not true, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it drives me insane. Like animation, you know, the written word, all of this, like even audio dramas to a, a large extent, they're amazing forms of art, they're amazing mediums. And I think so much can be said for them. They can accomplish things that live action can't and while yes sometimes it's great to get a live action adaptation of something i would enjoy them a hell of a lot more if they were faithful to what made me fall in love with this story in the first place you know what i mean
0: Mm -hmm. and there are ways that you can do it transformative but I don't think that transform that transformation can come from you deciding to change things that are already in place. Mm-hmm. I think I think it would have been a totally different story if Stanley Kubrick had, like, picked a ghost or picked one of the entities. If he had sticked with just the family that got yes. murdered and what happened there. Yes. Or sticked with the weird furry thing. Or stuck with the woman in the bathtub. And okay. I think him trying to put it all together like the book and then change it at the same time couldn't happen and couldn't happen in a a well way or a way that gave the source material the justice it deserves. Uh, Even though we are a film and movie and TV podcast, uh, we do love books here (laughs) and other... Gracious readers, the
1: both of us. (laughs) Um, I'm also an author, so I... Very defensive of the written word as well as being an avid reader. Erica's an avid reader,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. and I love film. Film is a medium I definitely want to work with, and film is something that I'm trying to to use to express things or tell stories or whatever. But mm-hmm. I never view if I've I've absolutely considered using something that's already been written uh, to make a live action work of it. Uh, but never have I thought that I was going to make it for TV as much as either expand on it in ways that I thought of in my head with the due credit or do a faithful adaptation where I can make it have the same effect it did in the book in, you know, visually. I've never thought of taking something like that and using it as a basis, but transforming it in a way to where it loses its source material reading or thinking that I'm, I'm putting it to film so it's better or making it some better form of art rather than changing it or, uh, reimagining it within the space that I've been given like um if anyone's ever heard of like SCP the secure contain protect um there's a lot of lore written in there that is free to use for other stories other it's kind of like open source open material and never have I ever thought of thinking of those monsters in some totally different way if if I'm deciding to take it or you know take that and use it as a basis for
1: something I'm going to brag on Erica here for a second, because, you know, she, like she's saying, she does, um, she's very passionate about film. I, like I said, I'm a writer. Film is not really something that I've, I've ever really even understood as like an artist to use as a medium. It's not something I think I have a talent for, but Erica is an amazing artist, and I think she has such amazing original ideas and she you know she's one of those like amazing artists that i love to work with because while she has her own wonderful original ideas that i think would make great like short films or movies or whatever she's also so respectful of other artists and if she were creating an adaptation like we were talking about she would be very faithful to I think whatever the artist was trying to convey originally because it's not about Erica's ego, it's about the art. And I think that's what makes her an amazing creator and I think an amazing filmmaker as well. Oh, stop. I will not. The people need to know the truth. (laughs) No because well, I don't want people to think of you as like purely a curator of other people's art because Erica does have amazing original ideas of her own that I think are really just incredible um, but I also would feel very safe handing her any of my works to create an adaptation of would love
0: to especially because like if I like something why do I want to change it I liked it the way it was and all I want to do is add something visually Mm -hmm. to give that feeling in a different way like I don't want to change it or you know you know you know
1: like (laughs) I just think you're very good at getting to the essence of what a story is and so even if you are making changes visually or you know you know and there's I'm not one of those people who's gonna walk into a movie and be like well it sucked because in the book they said her eyes were blue and her eyes were green like I don't care about stuff like that it's really just about the the message you know Mm -hmm. and um that is what you're really good at getting to the heart of and so things that you might add um, that don't necessarily translate through the written word or maybe through animation or something like that but would look really cool in live action and would add to kind of the messaging that was trying to be conveyed, you know, you're, you're really good at kind of, it's sort of like, it's sort of like seasoning, like a chef, you know what, you know, when, <laughs> you know what to add and you know when enough is enough, like, Gordon Ramsay would take a bite of one of Erica's short films and be like the seasoning the salt
0: (laughs) I would also like to note that I have no short film for anyone to watch right now uh (laughs) Hannah knows because I've told her about all my ideas and I because she herself is an amazing artist especially and continue continuity and things reading a certain way uh, so I always bounce my ideas off her and when I even you know I'm trying to try and put something in motion now so I can make something uh, head is absolutely a person I will talk to extensively about it because I want it to read how I want it to and I I have written a couple things, but I wouldn't say that writing and storytelling is my forte as much as I have these visual ideas that I want to try and put somewhere and try and keep and store, because I'm a very visual person. And Hannah is instrumental <laughs> in, in making those things something that
1: could be tangible and make sense. We definitely balance each other very well, because I'm a very cerebral person, and I I am good at taking the abstract and making it into something i think that makes sense but i'm not so great at visualizing or kind of like <laughs> i get very caught up in the details and i can get like like a broken record and i'm just stuck on one thing and erica's very good at like kind of pushing me past that and like out of the groove of something onto the bigger picture because um I, I also bounce ideas off of Erica extensively because, like I said, I'll get stuck in a, in a rut. And if Erica couldn't sh- kick my ass out of one, I think I'd be stuck <laughs> in them forever on a lot of these stories. <laughs> so we make a good team, Erica. Hey. Hey. <laughs> but but yeah, anyway, I... yeah. That's why I fucking <laughs> you, Stanley Cooper, <laughs> <do that? laughs> I don't even like Stephen King, but you did him wrong. <laughs>
0: yeah, and especially like I think it's easy for people like, well, Stephen King doesn't like it because he read it, but there are a lot of adaptations that Stephen King really likes. Matter of fact, I was gonna mention because we're definitely gonna have to revisit this either once we read, but there's actually apparently like a short episodic series mm-hmm. reimagining or redoing of the shining that um Stephen King actually liked and approved yes of. So, I
1: saw that too I wanted to watch that
0: one <laughs> so I want to see what that is and what that's about because he he obviously did care and and want his work to be transferred in that way but mm-hmm. transferred you know translated in a different medium not
1: kind of rewritten it was strange <laughs> I know just, the Shining by Stephen King. Not The Shining inspired by. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Ugh. Ugh. Bothers me. Bothers me so much. But. Um, one thing I will say for Stanley Kubrick. I've ragged on him a lot this this episode. But um, we were reading interviews with Danny Lloyd. The, the guy who played Danny Torrance. And he said Kubrick was really nice to all the kids. And tried to make the set a really fun. And um lighthearted place for them to be. None of them were told they were starring in a horror film. They weren't allowed to be on set when anything kind of, like, disturbing or creepy was being filmed. And Kubrick made a a big effort to make it, like, a positive and safe experience for them. So kudos to you on that, Kubrick. I'll give you that.
0: Mm -hmm. And he, he does do some visual things very, very well. There are things that I really liked. I just don't think they made sense or were very meaningful and I think it really cheapened how cool they were to see visually and that they were just there visually like it would have been cool to see that and maybe like a reel you know like a Stanley Kubrick reel but it didn't it didn't do it for me because of the (laughs) movie I'm supposed to be watching that big picture and it wasn't there
1: it's almost like Stanley Kubrick is a cinematic director hired for his amazing Attention to visuals and way with visuals, but maybe, perhaps, not so strong in storytelling. If only there was an author, a prolific, beloved author, who had written a book <laughs> and a that story. he could have <laughs> translated visually. <laughs> Too bad Stanley Kubrick had to come up with story all on his own. It doesn't seem like it's <laughs> like a thing. <laughs> yeah, I just but
0: especially.
1: I the team. Maybe it's some guy named, like, Steven. Like, yeah, Steven yeah. Stanley. <laughs> what, a, what a pair they would have made. Yeah, it was just, I was just like, ugh. And, you know, I it just... You know, like even... did, you know who did this concept better? And it's going to pain me to say this a little bit. Because I feel like, I feel like a film bro is going to jump through my window once I say it. Um, American Horror Story Murder House did this <laughs> concept better. <laughs> Yeah, I love
0: Murder House. That's probably my favorite season of American Horror Story.
1: I'd have to agree with you. Um, I haven't seen a lot of seasons of Horror Story, but um, Murder House was very well done. It, you know, everything tied together. It was clear that, you know, the house kind of had a spirit of its own while being haunted by lots of other, you know, there minis. are
0: ends that we don't, you know, that don't ever really get tied. Like, we don't necessarily yeah. know why a lot of things happen. There are very striking and intense and scary visuals. Um, you know, it was all there. There was a lot of shocking stuff that was
1: there. Lots of, like, oh, ah. And had Jessica Lange. And I love Jessica Lange. That's kiss. I want to be her when I am 75.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So Erica, wait, wait, wait. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: Before we do the rating, I have more fun facts. Oh yeah, okay. I
1: have lots of things I
0: like about this, or not lots of things I like about this movie, but things that are there are very interesting things about this movie, and it's filming. Um, But um, okay, so I mentioned that Stephen King wrote the script and Kubrick didn't read it because I don't know why, Um, and someone else still wrote the script. I just don't know why. I don't know. I don't know. Um, cool thing, so Tony was always supposed to be like a character, but the way Tony is um portrayed with the little finger and that different voice was Mm -hmm. actually all improvised by Danny, like the actor who played Danny, which I Mm -hmm. thought is adorable. He was so he's very talented. He was really good in this movie, um, all the way through. And uh he's also adorable. I want to put his little cheeks, he was so cute. Um Okay, so while we were watching the movie, you know how I told you that I felt really, really bad for whatever intern had to write all those pages of all work, no play makes Jack a boy? Yes. (laughs) I had learned that it was actually Kubrick's secretary who wrote that, and she wrote over 500 pages of that. Not only that, but she also wrote it in other languages for, like, international releases for the movie. Homegirl was putting in the work. I hope she got paid a lot. I think she deserves some, 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 some stuff for that.
1: I think that better have gotten an amazing bonus that
0: year. (laughs) An amazing bonus. Um, the elevator scene, which is honestly one of my, I love looking at it. It is such a cool scene. Uh, But I can't attribute it to anything meaningful (laughs) narratively. Like it's just uh, every time I saw it, I was like, wow, that's really cool. I wonder how they did that and thought nothing more of it. It didn't really freak me out. It was just like, oh, but the elevator scene actually took a full year to film. They actually got it in three takes, but it is all practical. So they had to fill the elevator with blood. Um And they had to do the scene, and then every time they did it, it took about nine days to clean, and then they had to refill the elevators full of blood and make sure everything was back so they could do it all again. So it ended up taking up to a year, which I thought was cool. I love practical effects, so I was
1: like, ah! It, um, it was so good. That was definitely one of the most visually, like, amazing things that the movie did. hmm Apparently, this movie
0: was very, very stressful on many of the actors. For one, um, the dude who plays the cook, uh, Mr. Scatman. Uh, And I looked it up. He is not the Scatman from the infamous song slash meme. Uh, His parents just named him Scatman for some reason. (laughs) But um, when he's, like, in his bedroom and it zooms in on his face because he's, like, kind of shining and thinking and, you know, starts to get concerned. And I think he's picking up some vibes from Danny they actually filmed that scene several times just of it zooming in on his face and it so long and it just got so exhaust like he, um, the actor got so exasperated that he actually cried while they were filming it. And because he cried, um, um, uh, what's his name? Because he cried, uh, Jack Nicholson actually swore, he swore he'd never work with Kubrick again because of all the stress that he put people in filming that movie. And then last but not least, to go on, I mentioned that he treated um, uh, Shelly Duval kind of like crap during that movie. Um, I think she actually had to get some therapy after the fact, it sounds like. Um, but she lost hair during filming because it was so stressful. And that scene I took you about, the infamous scene where people often talk about her, you know, being so stressed out and so many takes, uh, is a scene where she has the baseball bat and she's talking to Jack on the stairs. And, you know, she's like, go away, don't come near me. Okay, They took that scene 127 times. It took 127 takes. It actually has a Guinness Book World Record for the most amount of takes for a scene. Um, And she was like, she had sores on her hands. Um, She was really dehydrated and exhausted. She was crying. She said that she had to try and get herself in this awful headspace where she, you know, every day she was crying and exhausted and and she said that she would try and get herself into the, you know, to try to pre-get herself into a space that would make those scenes look good. So she'd watch sad things and think of sad moments in her life. And she said it even got to a point where her body was like, I'm not doing, like, you can't put me through this every single day. And it was just extremely physically, emotionally, and mentally taxing on her. So oh, gosh, yes, yeah, she still says the way she talks about it, she says that she was just kind of really pushed in that role. Um, but it was yeah. it was hard for her. She says it's still like the hardest role she's ever played. So
1: poor thing.
0: There's some fun movie facts for you because I love
1: that stuff. And we're back to fuck you, Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> like <laughs> bro. Oh man. Alright. Oh, oh the shining. Well, how many Red rooms out of ten. Would you rate The Shining, Miss Erica?
0: I think I would give it maybe, maybe four red rooms out of ten. I just it didn't do it for me. I and I wouldn't even say it was like super hyped. Like I didn't think this movie was gonna be the scariest thing I ever saw or anything like that. But it's still it was still very disappointing and. Mm-hmm. or consider it something of such high regard because it was it seems kind of new in that same group of films. The Shining doesn't seem much like any of the other big horror movies at that time. Um in terms of like visual attempts and kind of you know the attempt <laughs> of like that psychological horror whatever. And I think I I think people call this movie so great not before the big picture of it. I think the things that they like narratively come from Stephen King. And I think the things they like visually come from Kubrick, but they don't mesh. They, it doesn't work. It, it got too muddied and muddled and messed with on Kubrick's end for, you know, for the script and the story. Um, and I think people kind of took those things and ran with it rather than kind of that big picture and that overall art. And I think that overall, that big picture is very important for film. So
1: I agree. I was also going to give it four red rums out of ten um, (laughs) for many of the same reasons. I think Um, I have to give it some credit because visually it was very, very well done. Um, At least one red rum is there just purely for Danny Lloyd because at five years old he did a fantastic job. So Um, good. (laughs) And uh, like you were saying, I think it might have been kind of a pioneering force for its time. But uh, it's not 1980 anymore. (laughs) Um, Erica and I also kind of disagree on this point where um, I think what a lot of people said it was pioneering could have absolutely still been done better, even if there wasn't necessarily a strong precedent for it. Mm. So I'm I'm less tempted to give it slack in that area. But I feel like I've um, kind of ragged a lot on this movie and on Stanley Kubrick both of which I know are kind of very well beloved by the uh film bros uh cinema gals uh mm-hmm. Who knows?
0: and we might see something else by Stanley Kubrick that's great I don't know yet so we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll see
1: mean, and like the Indiana Jones those are cool <laughs> Stanley Kubrick direct Indiana Jones one I
0: think at least Raiders of the Lost Ark they actually even used a set uh oh that was used for The Shining, even though it burnt down and they had to rebuild it. But they eventually did end up using it again. And I, yeah, Kubrick did one of the Indiana Jones. I think it's Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I could be wrong. Don't quote me on it.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, no, this is this is definitely not me making a sweeping statement that Stanley Kubrick is like, a failure or a terrible person <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just i i think a lot of people hold this up as probably one of his crowning achievements and i'm just sort of like i think he could do better <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I think i think he kind of i think I if said. there i quite frankly i think if there had been more teamwork between stephen king and stanley kubrick this movie could have very easily been an eight or a nine out of ten for me but it was uh, for what it was it was a four to ten mm-hmm. um so yeah that is that is the Shining. Uh, We watched it. We enjoyed it. There was a triple whammy use of the N-word that had us
0: laughing on the floor for like 20 minutes. Out of nowhere. And whoever wrote that script, I have three questions for you. The first question is, who told you N-word passes were real? The second question, uh, how did you obtain three of them? And the third question is, why did you decide to use them in a five to ten second span
1: of a film? It took us literally, I'm, I'm not kidding, 20 to 30 minutes to get through that 10 second span. Cause the first one happened and it was so out of the blue that like we had to pause it and laugh and say, who told them they could do this? And I was like, watch, they're gonna say it again. <laughs> <laughs> we hit play, they sure did. So we had to pause it again to laugh as I fell on the floor. <laughs> <And then laughs> we hit play again and they said it again. <laughs> I'm like,
0: it's fine if it's a, like it, it, it makes sense, but it just, it's such a, it came out of absolutely nowhere and no other point. Like, you know, the bartender is like old timey. He doesn't do it. It comes out of nowhere. It doesn't show up again. <laughs>
1: it's literally just whoever wrote that being like, I can say it because i from the 20s. Yeah. And here's my moment. Yeah. And I, <laughs>
0: It just, it was just so out of nowhere and like out like out of nowhere yeah like you know I'm fine with it in movies especially you know when it's warranted of course but um you know I and like I was joking with my dad earlier because I I asked him about it I'm like is this something you remember or was it just something that just because <laughs> like I out of nowhere there was like he says it and it's silence on the screen and then it was silence from us and like when he says it. It's like eleven o'clock at night, uh, and only me and Hannah are in her living room. And he goes, uh, "N word," and I, I'm sitting there shocked. And I was like, oh, I felt like Scooby Doo, you know, where they go and you brought that dog in there. And I was like, a dog? Where? <laughs> I was like, is he, is he talking to me? Does he know I'm the only one here? Does it, like only two of us. I am the black one. <laughs> <So fun. laughs> you know, that was the
1: scariest part of that movie, right there. Does that make- <laughs> simultaneously the most frightening and most hilarious part of that movie. But that was also us, our reaction to that scene um, made Erica think that we need to start filming us watching the movies so that we can maybe make a YouTube channel for y'all because I don't think we'll ever be able to replicate
0: our reaction to that scene. I know. And like, I know it probably doesn't sound nearly as funny, but it was certainly a, you have to be there and like you would have had to <laughs> see us in those exact
1: conditions. Because it just... <laughs> Sleep deprived in a darkened silent apartment high off of sugar and <laughs> French <Life>. fries. Like,
0: <laughs> I just, it was just so, <laughs> it was just so out of nowhere. And then it, it's, it just felt out of pocket. That's all I could, it just it felt was, out it, of it
1: pocket. was out of pocket? Oh my
0: goodness. Oh. I don't know how they kept a straight face filming it. I don't. It,
1: it. <laughs> It's the racism in it. It's the racism. <laughs> well, like, like I said, we have definitely missed you guys. We've missed making this podcast during our hiatus. We've been thinking a lot about it um, over the month of October. Just to give you kind of a little preview, um, we wanted to kick it off with a classic like The Shining. Next week, we'll be talking about a lesser-known Robin Williams movie called One Hour Ooh, Photo. Last week or this week? Oh, I'm sorry. This week. Yes, we're doing a double feature because we were, g- <laughs> y'all, I'm not kidding. When I said my life was hit by a freight train, like we were going to come out with this episode last week and then we we're going to do one hour photo this week. And then my car broke down for the fifth time in two months. Um, and I said, Erica, I did not have the mental space <laughs> to talk about Stephen King today. <laughs> I was like, that's valid. And it was, it was. Yes. oh um, yeah. So, it didn't happen last week. I apologize. You can come for me. You can come for my neck. Please actually, don't come for her neck. I'll fight you all. You can come for my car's neck, actually. <laughs> Do come for that car's neck. That car's going to CarMax. I'm done with it. Done. <laughs> <Ugh>. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so, this week, we're giving y'all a double feature here. Yep. and we will also be releasing our um, one-hour photo episode Uh, Next week, we are going to talk about Sleepaway Camp. I'm so excited. (laughs) um, I think we're going to throw in a bonus episode as well, talking about Halloween. And then the week after that, we will be discussing Carrie, another Stephen King classic. Mm -hmm. And on Halloween weekend, we will be uh, rounding out the month and our one-year anniversary with The Exorcist. Mm -hmm yes very excited. So excited we're very hyped we love halloween we love the season uh we love this podcast and we missed y'all Mm-hmm. so uh where can they find us on the interwebs oh my goodness well you can find us on twitter at thrillers chillers and chicks or on TikTok. um I believe also at Thrillers, Chillers, and Chicks, unless I am mistaken. I think it's Thrill Chill Chicks. You're so right. Okay. I (laughs) On TikTok, we are Thrill Chill Chicks, and on Twitter, we are actually at Ann Chillers, but I believe if you search for Thrillers, Chillers, and Chicks on TikTok or Twitter, you'll find us.
0: Mm -hmm. And we're talking about other things we can do, especially because, like, I feel like there's a lot of fun things we could do with you guys for maybe like a Patreon in the future or, uh, and you know, like Instagram's still there and you know, we're, we're, we're figuring it out. So, but that's where you can find us and talk to us and ask us
1: questions for now. Yes. Uh, feel free to give us, give us a shout. We, mm-hmm. we love to hear from y'all. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, we'll see you in the next episode and, mm-hmm. Well then, stay spooky. Stay spooky, woo.